You are listening to the Testudo Times Podcast Network. Hey guys, welcome to the latest edition of the Testudo Times Outtakes Podcast, where we shine a different light on Maryland sports figures and allow you to get to know them as people while getting an inside perspective on everything Terps. I'm your host, Lila Bromberg, and today I'm joined by Maryland basketball great Len Elmore, who played under Lefty Rizel for the Terps from 1971 to 74 with teammates like Tom McMillan and John Lucas. He then was drafted 13th overall in the 1974 NBA draft, and he played in the ABA and NBA from 1974 to 84. He then got his law degree and practiced law, and he is now a senior lecturer of sports management at Columbia, as well as a college basketball analyst for ESPN. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us on the podcast today. Now to start things off, I first have to ask, what was it like playing under Lefty Drizel, you know, just to be under one of the all-time great Maryland coaches and uh, be a part of that era under him? <laughs> uh, playing for Coach Drizel, I mean, most college athletes will tell you that, you know, playing for your coaches uh, had its great days and its good days and some not-so-good days. But always Coach was uh, one of those people who tried uh, his best to get the best out of you each and every day, whether it was practice or game. And, um, you know, you instilled in us the, a work ethic that I, I think uh, even transferred over into real life. Uh, he was a, as a coach, he was constantly um, looking to motivate you. We had the motivational signs uh, everywhere in the locker room and the training room. Um, things uh, that had sayings that would, you know, keep you uh, focused on how to be the best that you can be and how to work as hard as you can be. Uh, and, and as I said, you know, many of those sayings have, uh, you know, have, have stayed with me uh, since the, the day I got to Maryland. You know, things like the harder I work, the luckier I get. <laughs> or, um, you know, there is no I in team, things like that. Right. And, you know, you played in that classic 1974 you know, ACC title game with North Carolina State. To remember, is one of the best college basketball games. What do you remember just, you know, from that game and uh, play, being able to play in that? Well, obviously, we knew how much it meant. We were ranked, uh, I believe, number four in the nation, playing against the number one team in the nation, knowing that only one of us was going to go to the NCAA tournament, uh, which, you know, obviously the NCAA recognized how absurd that was in the following year after um, I had graduated, Tom McMillan had graduated. They changed it and expanded the field. But, um, you know, there was was pressure. There's no question about it. we also recognized uh, the talent that was out there on the floor at one time with the starting uh, two starting teams at the jump ball. If you look back, you could see that there were seven uh, first round NBA players that were on the floor at that time, um, future NBA players. So the level of competition was extremely high. And, you know, we were playing our third game in three nights, Thompson and the uh, and NC State, they were only playing the second game, and we jumped out to a 
a, a decent lead only to kind of run out of gas as they came on strong, forced in overtime, and they wound up beating us in overtime. You know, it was a hard-fought game, and it was, uh, you know, one of those games that a lot of people say it was so-called one of the greatest games ever played because, you know, there are very few forced turnovers. Um, you know, guys were handling the ball flawlessly, shooting the ball well, and it just so happened that, you know, they were – the better team by essentially a razor's edge. Is there a specific moment to you that, you know, sticks out from that night? Um, yeah, there might have been a, a, a couple of them. Uh, I guess the one was uh, the final shot in regulation. We had a chance. We just uh, didn't execute it very well. You know, a couple of players might have turned down. Uh, some wide open looks in order to pass the ball around and ultimately we never really got off a good shot. We had an opportunity to do so. You know, the lack of execution cost us. And do you have, you know, just a favorite memory from your time at Maryland and being able to play with those guys? Um, yeah, and there's several. I mean, the first of my sophomore year, we won the NIT when the NIT was almost the equivalent of the NCAA tournament. That was our sophomore year. Um, we went uh, from the year before, and remember, freshmen weren't eligible to play. So we, uh, our class wasn't on the varsity uh, our freshman year. But in our freshman year at Maryland Varsity, I think went 13 and 13 or 14 and 13. And then when we came along, uh, we wound up going 27 and 5 and wound up winning uh, the NIT. Uh, but, you know, that's one memory. The other is, um, you know, beating uh, North Carolina and Duke, and giving them their, some of their worst losses in the ACC tournament uh, my senior year on a back-to-back basis. So, you know, that's something that, that certainly will stick with us as, as great as those programs are. You know, we, were, we dominated them at, at a time um, that, you know, a lot of people... I uh, really thought that it was going to be us and NC State all along, and uh, we proved that to be true. Right. How much fun was it to, you know, have those rivalries and play against Duke in North Carolina? Uh, I mean, it was everything. That, that's why you play college basketball. That's why you go to a school in the ACC because of the rivalries, because of the quality of of, uh, of competition, and because it meant so much at the time. I mean, having been a founding team in the ACC, you know, Maryland obviously was always looked upon as uh, as a rival to those schools. And, you know, at the time, Duke wasn't uh, the Duke of today. Carolina certainly had their uh, moments in the sun because they were, you know, one of the, um, you know, pinnacles. Uh, they're, they're their play and, and their program was pinnacles uh, in the ACC, and you know NC State at the time was uh, you know just becoming uh, a, a very uh, competitive team in in the conference uh, as long as as well as Maryland. So you know when you looked upon uh, our opportunities to play those guys, um, you know you recognize how important it was. You know game by game. Um, because, again, the only the winner of the ACC tournament uh, was uh, allowed to go to the NCAA tournament. And so, you know, it was, uh, it, it, they were hard-fought battles uh, 
to kind of gain your 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 footing and uh, kind of gain your dominance over the other team, both mentally as well as physically. Right, and I know when talks were in the works of you know Maryland to the, going from the ACC to the Big Ten, uh, you spoke out against that. Do you still kind of feel that same way several years into the switch about kind of losing some of those rivalries? Oh, absolutely. And, and look, it, it's what's done is done. I mean, you develop new rivalries. Obviously, as years go on, Maryland will find you know its natural rival. I'm not sure there is one yet. Uh, but, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. The toothpaste is out of the tube. Uh, we can only, those of us who came from that era can only look back and, and reminisce about, you know, those days uh, when, you know, Maryland and Carolina and Maryland and Duke were were rivals. Uh, when Maryland and Virginia at one point were rivals as well. Uh, and, you know, look upon those days fondly and, you know, hope looking forward that, you know, the same, uh, types of rivalries, the same types of affinity uh, for you know league play uh, will develop uh, with Maryland being in the Big Ten. Right, and then you were drafted in a you know, seventy-four NBA draft. Ended up playing uh, in the ABA for you know a few years, and then were part of that merger. What do you remember from that time? What was that like just to be a part of um, you know the two leagues merging? It was uh, it was interesting. Uh, first of all. Yeah, I, I wound up shoot. I got drafted by the Washington Bullets, uh, obviously the local team, as well as the Indiana Pacers in the first round. Uh, the reason I chose Indiana is because of a better uh, a better offer, a more secure deal. You know, Washington only offered two years guaranteed. I think they thought that they could get over because they were the NBA. Uh, but the ABA offered uh, a five-year all-guaranteed deal, and from security standpoint, uh, with twice the money, uh, from security standpoint, I chose them. Indiana was a very solvent uh, uh, business, and you know, solvent financial ownership. So, you know, I, I think I made a pretty good decision there. In the first two years, we did play in the ABA. I got to play in the league finals. Uh, my rookie year helped lead the team there. Um, and as time went on, we recognized that a merger would occur. And that's another reason I chose Indiana, because being probably the most solvent ABA team, you knew that if the merger had occurred, Indiana would be one of the teams that would be incorporated in the NBA. And it certainly worked out that way. Uh, unfortunately, during that first year, I uh injured my knee and I was out for the season pretty much. I, I tried to play and I only had six games and finally realized that I couldn't play uh, because the injury was so serious. Uh, but So I missed that first year pretty much um, as far as going from ABA into the NBA. But thereafter, um, it was obviously a, a great experience to be uh, a member of a team and then other teams that were part of, of the NBA of a solidified basketball association now that, um, you know, gave people uh, an awful lot of thrills. And, um, and obviously we, from a, a standpoint as players, were all happy that we had consolidated and were able to all play against each other. Right. Was that something that you kind of, guys all saw was a little bit in the work like what was that buzz like when that finally happened 
Yeah, I mean, it was an, an inevitability. Uh, it was simply because, again, we we recognize that uh, with the bidding wars that were occurring, the businesses, uh, individual businesses, weren't going to be able to survive. And, and that proved true as uh, those last two years of the ABA uh, started to reveal. Um, you know, teams fell by the wayside because they couldn't pay players. Um, as I said, I was fortunate enough to, to really be drafted by one of the more solvent teams in not only in the ABA, but one of the more solvent teams in basketball. And so the guys knew that, and they could see it happening. Um, only four teams out of uh, you know eight or nine teams that began the ABA, only four teams were left. Um, and that was uh, the Nets in New York, Long Island, San Antonio Spurs, um, the Denver, uh, at that time, the Denver Rockets, and the uh, Indiana Pacers. And throughout your time in the NBA, is do you have a certain memory of kind of, you know, the toughest player you competed against or one of your favorite games? Well, in the NBA, in the ABA, certainly it was uh, several of the big men. I mean, you know, some of the toughest games played against were against Artis Gilmore, uh, Dan Issel, um, Moses Malone, um, Marvin Barnes, uh, Maurice Lucas, played the players like that who were ABA players before they were NBA players. And to be matched up against them, and those were only one of uh, uh, only a number of uh, several great players, and to be able to hold your own and even excel against them were great memories. What was your favorite part of that, you know, experience of your, of your ten years playing, you know, both through the ABA and NBA? Um, one of the most fondest, one of the fondest memories that I have is when I got traded from the Milwaukee Bucks to the New Jersey Nets. New Jersey Nets were uh, a young team uh, coached by, you know, my favorite and probably the best coach ever played for in the pros, Larry Brown. And, you know, the, the beauty of it was there were two other Maryland Terrapins on that team, Albert King and Buck Williams. Um, uh, and they were rookies. We had a nice mix of rookies and veterans. And the thing I remember most was as a starter, I got there my – First game uh, with the Nets, I came off the bench and had a double-double, 14 points, 11 rebounds, as I recall. And from that point on, I became a starter, uh, along with Buck and along with Albert. And I think if my memory serves me correct, and somebody can check this, uh, we probably had the uh, longest tenure as uh, three guys starting on the same unit uh, that came from the same school, the same alma mater. And it was great night after night for like 79, 80 games to hear us introduced because you'd hear the PA announcers say, you know, and from the University of Maryland, you know, Len Elmore, and from the University of Maryland, and from the University of Maryland. So you're in Maryland repeated during those introductions and that happened night in night out it was a you know a proud feeling for for the three of us for sure you know we started out uh two and 13 we wound up winning uh 44 games i believe and, and made the playoffs so it was 
you know, it was a nice feeling to bring a young team along to be part of a veteran mix along with young players that could uh, demonstrate growth and and improvement uh, to get to the playoffs after a rocky start. Right, and so you played on that team with two overturps. I remember, you know, Walt Williams was telling me about, you know, being able to also play on a team with a couple of overturps. And, you know, you didn't have it for a while, but now you have the Kevin Herter, Bruno Fernando, and Alex Len all playing for Atlanta. How cool is it to see, you know, another team having multiple Maryland players on it again? It's great. I mean, it's, it's good, but the, the only difference, like I said, is to have the three of us starting right, right after. But nevertheless, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a proud moment for, you know, the university and, um, you know, I wish those guys well. Hopefully they understand the, the import of having, you know, the, the uh, alum along with them. It just demonstrates the, the pride in the program and the success of the program. After you retired from the NBA, you know, you went into law school for you. What went into, you know, that decision and, you know, made you want to do that? I had always wanted to be a lawyer. I, I, I joke, but it's kind of serious to say that uh, basketball actually interrupted my pursuit of, of the law. I had been uh, thinking about being a lawyer since I was in grade school. Remember, I came up, I uh, grew up during a period of time uh, where it was uh, a tumultuous period. The civil rights movement, the war in Vietnam, uh, you know, so many things were occurring. And I thought uh, being a lawyer, being uh, involved in uh, socio-political movement would be, um, you know, something that I could help affect some change in the world. And I thought uh, being a lawyer would, would certainly help. And, you know, I've had a, a chance to have some impact on um, on those things as I ultimately gained my degree and practice law throughout. But, uh, you know, I was also impressed by watching television uh, during those times when, uh, you know, shows like Perry Mason and Defenders, etc. were um, certainly influential. You know, you could be a, a voice for the voiceless uh, and to help the powerless. So that was uh, my intent. And is is there a moment that kind of sticks out for you from that? Like, you know, how great was it to, you know, live out that, you know, childhood dream you have and, uh, you know, get that law degree and be able to, you know, make an impact in that way? Yeah, I mean, the moments that I can look at it in the practice of law, I was able to, you know, go back to my hometown community, Brooklyn, New York, you know, even though I was raised in Queens for the most part, I was born uh, in, and was raised in Brooklyn partly to become an assistant district attorney and have some impact on law enforcement in, in my, you know, hometown. Um, also used the law to, you know, kind of affect some change with regard to, you know, players in the NBA as an agent. Um, and also in private practice, uh, as I said, to you know, work with organizations and work with people to, you know, kind of affect some positive social change. So, you know, those areas were very important to me. I mean, that's something that, that I grew up with. And, you know, I haven't forgotten uh, the concept of service and, and wanting to, you know, help 
and, and, and be of help uh, to, to so many people and in, in, in society. And, and even so many of the things that I do today, so many boards that I sit on, some other community endeavors that require my expertise as a lawyer, as well as other experiences have certainly, you know, demonstrated that commitment. And now, you know, you're teaching at Columbia as well, right? Yes, I'm uh I'm a full-time faculty at Columbia University. I teach in the sports management uh, department, sports management program. And, you know, it's been been wonderful to to work with young students, uh, graduate students particularly. You know, an introduction to the business of sports and an understanding of of many of the things that, you know, I was able to learn and, and to be able to affect and see the impact on the business of sport, which is, you know, essentially a reflection of society and many of the things that were important to me as a lawyer and, you know, as a businessman in, in the world of sports as well as in uh, the world that uh, surrounds sports, you know, I think I can impart uh, some of that wisdom to young people. You know, I made the choice to, to be a teacher because, you know, at a certain age, you amass a, a lot of um, institutional knowledge, if you will, and you start to realize that you can't take it with you. So why not pass it on in, in the hopes that, you know, the people who are, are on the receiving end are going to use it in a positive way. You mentioned, you know, being involved with, you know, some stuff with the, you know, MBA through your law degree. And now, you know, you're teaching sports management and things like that. You know, what do you think of just kind of the contrast and shift now in the NBA where it's, you know, where in your era, a lot of times it was really driven by the owners and things like that. And now you really have players being able to speak out and, you know, a lot more demands for trades and, you know, just things like that have a whole um, kind of culture shift in a way. Yeah, I mean, the arc of influence certainly is uh, has been towards players right now. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with the amount of money that's involved in the way the game has been marketed. Uh, players have now taken the center stage. There's no question about it. And for the most part, that's a good thing. And I just hope that, you know, the power that they have, that they wield it in, in a positive fashion. I, I like the idea of the outspoken social and uh, social justice activism and, and political activism by some players who've uh, achieved a certain platform, and now they have an opportunity to use that platform uh, in a positive fashion. And I hope they continue to do that and not just use it, you know, for you know commercial gain. Um, but you know, there, there's still a lot more to learn, and there's a lot more uh, for players to be taught if they choose to to listen and and hopefully you know they will do that because the the power uh will continue to to i guess uh fall in that direction because it reminds me of that old saying um and this is what happens if you owe the bank uh a million dollars you have a problem but if you owe the bank a hundred million dollars then the bank has a problem well you know players now are getting paid so much money that uh that shift of responsibility, that shift of influence, that shift of power has now gone their way, and hopefully they'll continue to do positive things with it. Was that something that you guys kind of yearned for, you know, in your playing days, is to be able to have more of, you know, that voice and impact? Um, well, we, I mean, we had, to a certain extent, uh, had some voice, but not the platform 
that players have today. And a lot of it has to do with technology and social media um, and, and the position that that has taken in society, as well as the amount of money that um, you know players are, are paid these days. Uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly is something, particularly in retrospect, that you wish you had, um, simply because... You know, if if I knew then what I know now, it probably could affect an awful lot of positive change through, um, you know, our, our positioning. And if we had then what we have now, uh, we certainly could be able to, to kind of move mountains, if you will. Uh, but again, you know, players are uh, hopefully responsibly wielding that power uh, to the point where... Um, you know, I think it'll have positive impact. Now, a couple of areas where I have a quibble with, now, you know, this concept of load management, I have no idea what that's about. Um, I remember when you sign a contract, uh, we got paid for playing 82 games, and the only thing that would keep you out of a game would be an injury or something along those lines, not the fact that, you know, you have to have a rest every now and then. Um you know, and now players get paid literally a hundred times more than, than many of us got paid. And they're talking about, you know, taking days off, which, like I said, it boggles the mind of old veterans who, you know, recognize how hard it was to play back then. I mean, we didn't have private jets carrying us around. We, um, you know, and we, we had to fly commercially. You know, we played sometimes three games in four nights. Uh, things like that that took a toll on the body, but we recognize that was part of our responsibility. But again, it, it's the power of the player that allows you know these things to, to be considered and, and sometimes uh, implemented. Uh, and you know, I guess it's a good thing for the players if, in fact, they're not expected to play 82 full games um, you know every year. But that's why I said it's kind of a foreign concept to me and to players of my era. And I know you're now also, you know, a college basketball analyst. Just what do you think of all the, you know, craziness so far this year with all the early upsets and shifts? Do you kind of remember in recent years of college basketball season looking like this early on? Well, it's interesting that, you know, I've been doing college basketball on television now for probably 32 years. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't seen a, a season like this in a long time. And certainly it was in the early days when, you know, still many players were playing until they were juniors and seniors, which gave them experienced teams that, you know, were highly competitive and, and very skilled. You know, today you have a mix of teams that are competitive and, and skilled and, and mature versus teams that are very young. And, and not as, uh, you know, not as, uh, as mature. And sometimes you have the meeting of those teams, even though you have the uh, name on the front with a tried and true tradition, uh, getting upset by teams that don't have that same kind of tradition, it really is all about, you know, the makeup of the team and, and also the parity of the team. I think the so-called one-and-done rule you know, has taken away uh, the uh, the power of, of many of the teams that you'd expect to be, you know, out front and uh, made them kind of uh, vulnerable to so-called upsets. Um, 
but you know, parity is, is good for college basketball. And you know, you look at teams like um, North Carolina. You look at teams, even you know, Duke. Uh, you look at teams in the Big Ten like Ohio State and others um, who are, you know, Kentucky. Everybody at one point or another has suffered an upset, Kansas, etc. Even though those are very highly uh, traditional teams and, you know, constantly at, at the forefront of college basketball, they're now relegated to being almost uh, a regular team now because of the power of, of smaller schools or schools without as big a reputation. Um, they're, they're starting to, you know, kind of feel their oats a little bit. Again, it has a lot to do, uh, very much to do with the talent and maturity of, of these teams. And as I said, parity is, is a good thing. Do you think we're going to end up having kind of a crazier NCAA tournament than we've seen in recent years, just with the way the season has gone so far already? Uh, well, the NCAA tournament, I, I'm not sure how crazy it'll be, but um, yeah, I, I think that once we recognize that there are so many teams that are evenly situated, and a lot of that, as I failed to mention in the last question, a lot of that also has to do with television and the fact that more and more young people are essentially going to other schools because so many schools are on TV. There was a time when the recruiting line included the fact that we're on television more than anyone else or among the most of, of anyone else, and they're, they're, that way people will get to see you play. Well, there are so many games on TV now that even so-called mid-major can make that argument that Gonzaga's of the world and people like that can say, hey, guys, you know, we're on TV all the time, so you can come and play with us. And, and I think that's what kind of spreads the talent uh, throughout the country. So, yeah, I mean, I, I expect to, to see that happen in the NCAA tournament where you're going to have teams that don't have the long traditional reputation uh, get beat early. And, you know, that's, uh, again, that's the other thing that makes the NCAA tournament, you know, such a draw and an attraction. As you know, we wrap things up here. I have to get your thoughts. You know, what do you think of how, you know, Maryland's looked, you know, so far this season? I know they've kind of been struggling a little bit of late, you know, losing their last two and struggling on the road a bit. But just, you know, what do you think of this team, the potential? Well, I mean, again, this is one of those teams that, uh, you know, hopefully holds on and then probably will get to the NCAA tournament where, you know, now it's just a six-game uh, tournament and their talent – can rise to the top. Uh, they're not going to be caught by surprise uh, by anyone. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they do have a, a significant amount of talent and maturity. It's just a question of pulling it together. You know, it's all about execution. I mean, the, uh, the game, the Wisconsin game, was a perfect example where, you know, they kind of fell down on the execution on both ends in a close game. And, you know, those are, those are learning uh, essentially learning moments uh, or teachable moments for the coaches. Uh, and you can make sure that, you know, it doesn't happen again by utilizing, you know, those moments uh, as you go forward and as you get to the NCAA tournament. But there's no question about it. Maryland has uh, enough talent to win. 
um, and to go to win not only in their conference in the Big Ten, but also to go deep in the NCAA tournament. It's a question of whether or not they pull it together and, and they execute um, uh, utilizing the talent that they have. All right. Well, thank you so much for you know joining me on this podcast. We really appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. Take care.